Can one person make a difference in the climate fight? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we revisit three conversations from 2020 that empower us to make a difference, both individually and collectively. The small choices we make every day can have an impact on climate. But does focusing on individual action distract us from changing the economics that encourage us to accumulate more stuff? You know, I don't think we should feel individually guilty necessarily for our consumption, but we should feel collectively responsible for fixing these systems and building a better world. Later on, we'll talk with former New York Times reporter Tatiana Schlossberg about how to be a more informed and impactful consumer. And two experts in sustainable apparel uncover the hidden carbon footprint stuffed in our drawers, closets, and gym bags. Yoga pants, bicycling shorts, you know, denim jeans. What does that material look like? You know, where is it coming from? What's the environmental impact of it? But first... Julia Roberts won an Oscar 20 years ago for her portrayal of Maverick environmental activist Aaron Brockovich, who in 1993 took on Pacific Gas and Electric for poisoning the water supply in Hinckley, California, and won. These people don't dream about being rich. They dream about being able to watch their kids swim in a pool without worrying that they'll have to have a hysterectomy at the age of 20. The real Aaron Brockovich hasn't slowed down since then. In fact, she's out there writing the sequel. Her new book is Superman's Not Coming, Our National Water Crisis and What We the People Can Do About It. Brockovich talks about taking the fight for clean water to communities throughout the country. Lately, she's been focusing her unique brand of inclusive can-do activism also on the climate crisis. Seeing is believing. I think climate change has been something that's been difficult for people because you can't really see it. You know, we think of climate and it's air and, and where is it? It reminds me when I was out in Hinkley and I was looking at the two-headed frog and the green water. And that visual meant everything to me. And we're visual. Most of us are. And what's happening now for all of us, we've, we've seen the fires in Australia. We've certainly experienced them on the West Coast. We're, and I, I, I let people know if you can think of it as a weather phenomenon, because you can almost visualize a tornado or a hurricane or a fire and what the climate change and the global warming has done. And I let people know because they don't always see it. Somebody asked me, but what does water have to do with climate change? And I'm like, Okay, well, that's an excellent question. Um, I'll try not to be frustrated because I'm like, oh my gosh, climate is is water. And that is something that I hope you visualize. I mean, part of what's happening here is we've been in this drought. And so we have less water. We talk about in the book, you know, in Johannesburg, South Africa, they were literally going to have no water. So climate change is about too much water not enough water, no water, drought, flooding. And the conversation is really gearing up and it's always been there, but I believe the conversation's getting bigger because it's affecting everyone and they're actually visually experiencing and seeing a result and it can be suffocating and it's frightening and the losses can be great. So I just... I hate to say it, the movie Twister, and I don't know who saw it, uh, but Bill Paxton is waiting 
watching the storm coming and one of his workers comes up and is referencing, oh, you know, you can see it. He says, oh my gosh, it's coming. And Bill Paxton that moment stopped and he said, it's already here. And so I think it's becoming real because it's tangible. It's touchable. You're running from it. You're breathing it. You're swimming in it. You could be drowning in it. I just think it's here. And I know that sounds dramatic, but it is dramatic. And I'm often struck with Rachel Carson. And again, I quote this uh, in, in the book, Superman's Not Coming, but she talks about how man has alt has the fateful power to alter nature. And, and that's a battle that will not be won by us. And instead of trying to continue to alter that, rather we look to ourselves and master and alter our responses, our solutions, and our actions. And it just amazes me that she said this in 1963 and what was happening in the 60s and, and where did we not hear or heed a warning and how we get better at that because climate change will be about our response, our preparedness, our defending ourselves and not just thinking that because you can't see it, that it's not going to happen. So does that mean the power is inward? Because so much of, of climate and environmentalism is about changing people's minds, changing other people, changing other parties, other states, other, et cetera. So am I hearing you say that, like, look inward first for power and change rather than shaming oil companies or uh, Republicans or things like that? Absolutely. I mean, it would be foolish for us to think uh, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you can or can't be involved in this issue, or that industry or the fossil fuels can't. This will be something that collectively we got to drop that and work together. And I think that the, the thread or finger pointing or the name calling, all of that isn't serving any purpose other than getting two sides to stand down. And I want to find a way to break through that. We're all going to have to have a seat at this table. And here's the thing that I think is frustrating. We do have the technology um, and companies can step in here and work with the people. And so it's an inward moment where you're like, okay, I'm not going to engage in this, but I am going to engage in how I can get you to come together, to work together for a situation on this planet that will affect us all. It, it doesn't matter what your party affiliation is. It doesn't matter if you're industry or, or we as a community, what's going to matter is that we recognize it with stop with the name calling somebody just, you know, put the sword down and let's work collectively. We have to be collective on this issue for the entire planet which is the entire human species. And our country recently has had a real racial reckoning and awakening with uh, you know, the racist, uh, embedded racism, structural racism in our country today and in the past. I'd like to ask you about, in 2017, the Pawnee Nation filed a lawsuit against more than 25 oil and gas companies operating wastewater injection sites near their homes in Oklahoma, a state that's very dear to you. What's that case about and what is, what's its significance? 
Well, I think the biggest significance is, you know, we definitely see these communities that haven't been heard or that we're not listening to them. They feel suppressed and oppressed and socioeconomic factors. And there's a whole host of reasons, whether they don't have access to computers or school or education that They've been underestimated and set aside, but they're starting to really collectively find their voice. And uh, the Pawnee Nation was terribly affected by um, the earthquakes that was coming from the fracking and left and forgotten. So I work with the law firm, uh, Whites and Luxembourg, that had gone out there to help represent them. And we see these issues playing themselves out. You know, fracking is... Oh my gosh, there's so much that people don't know about fracking and and we talk about that in the book. And I the book is so important because I feel we're able to talk in a layman's term so that you can understand it because once we understand it and we get it, we'll take action. And um the Pawnee Nation was terribly devastated and their their water has been impacted and they they feel very forgotten and we're in a moment where they're speaking up. They're speaking out. We're all starting to see it. Uh, I, I've seen it on the ground for 20 years, and it's very hurtful. And what happens is somehow they get convinced that their voice won't matter, and they'll back off for a while. Um, and out of fear and uh, feeling less than and how they've been treated, and that just simply has to stop. And again, like climate change, <laughs> we have to see. And that has been my gift to me to be on the ground and to be able to be with them and see and touch and know that this is happening. And um, their voice, uh, they're starting to to find that and they're starting to, they're also getting support. You know, that is very key that they have the support of us or the support of a community. So they were very impacted and, and that lawsuit is still ongoing to try to get recovery for them because they were devastated by the earthquakes and they're being devastated by the pollution caused by fracking. Uh, one day, Lori Pop uh, turned on the tap in her home in Southern Arizona and brown water came out. What's, yes. her, what's her story and how is that a cautionary tale? Oh, well, it's a big one. Um, so in the book, we share a collage of photos that come in. They've come in from every single state in the United States and multiple cities. And the green water, I'm telling you, is chromium-6. I've not been wrong on that. We've had a, I, you could argue with me about that all day. I'm going to tell you, nope, chrome-6. And I can tell you right around 1 ppm what color it's going to be. It has a color in water. And then when we see the brown waters and um, the dirty waters, uh, the black waters, oftentimes we have... Um, oil and gas issues. We have tank farms that are leaking. Um, they've come into their backyard, people on well water. But generally across the board, we're seeing these watercolors because we're adding ammonia to the system and we're not treating the dirt appropriately at the municipality. And what's worrisome about those photos is generally often in there is lead. We have 18 million miles of pipeline, of lead pipeline, that we need to address our infrastructure. So regarding that color of the water, it's telling us several things. Infrastructure issue, pollution issue, bacterial issue, lead issues, 
and that the water is not being treated appropriately at the municipality. So as water comes in, it has dirt in it, right? And they have to add chlorination because we don't want to have E. coli outbreaks and things like that. But what a lot of people don't know, and here's a big message, we need to know our water. We need to understand water. And when we do, it changes everything. So organic matter and chlorination create a very toxic compound known as trihalomethanes, which is very regulated by the Safe Drinking Water Act. Now, if we would follow the Safe Drinking Water Act when we can't balance the system and can't keep our THMs controlled, is the appropriate filtration system. But we don't like to do that because we want to do things cheap and take these shortcuts. We can't take shortcuts on water. So adding ammonia to the system can reduce chlorination less effective. And then we have a whole situation happening in the distribution system, which most people don't realize is unregulated. A lot of stuff goes on in there. But when the water becomes corrosive and you have lead pipes, it causes the, the pipes to pit and all the iron and the manganese leaks out. That's often what you're seeing when it's coming out of the pipes, but come with it is the lead. So the lead is a huge issue. And if we could change adding ammonia and follow the Safe Drinking Water Act and guidelines for filtration, we would save infrastructure, which is in great need of repair. We all know we, we're going to have to do something about our infrastructure. And we would have less lead contamination and less Legionnaire outbreaks. We are definitely seeing more Legionnaire outbreaks. We are definitely seeing more lead contamination. We're working on the lead and copper rule. Congressman Dan Kildee has been amazing with that up in Flint, Michigan. And this was a, a policy written a long time ago that said you could test for lead in water once every four years and average the sample. What? We could be missing a whole lot of stuff going on. So for the person that, that sees that color of water, generally that is one of the number one cause of why you're seeing that discoloration of water. And I, we really need to get back to, to basics. We need to, on the upfront, take care of our infrastructure, safety, and people first. We have a question from Vanessa Caroline, listener. She asks, in addition to fighting the good fight for changes in our water rules, is there a way to protect ourselves and our homes from questionable municipal water, water purifiers? What can an average person do about the water in their home? That's a great question. And one of the first steps we tell people is know your water source, know your municipality. And if you haven't been getting a water quality report in your bill, you need to call them and you need to get them. We can't tell you what to filter, what filters to buy if you don't know what's in your water, because each chemical responds to a different, you know, resin or carbon or coconut shell. We've always said reverse osmosis can be one of the best ways to protect yourself at home, whether it's a home system, countertop system, under the sink map. There are concerns with that, that uh, the minerals are taken out. You can add the minerals back. There's definite question as, as you dispose of the reverse osmosis canister that the 
chemicals or compounds that are in there, how we dispose of them. But it is one of the safest ways to protect yourself at your tap. Know your water, know what's in your water, then you can begin to make the appropriate steps on what type of filtration that you would need to have at your home to better protect yourself. In Flint, Michigan, kind of the iconic uh, water contamination story, uh, you know, with a lot of racial uh, discrimination. Recently, there's a $600 million settlement with 80% of the funds going to people who are under 18 at the time of the crisis. Is that a just settlement And in, in your view? You know, um, I see these communities. I still talk to people out in Hinckley. Yes, the money and that settlement is a form of justice. In Flint, having a grand jury and those that knew and said nothing to see them be sentenced, um, to be reprimanded for that egregious behavior has been some justice. The national attention and, and the media and the story rising has been some justice. And when they get the money, yes, it feels like some justice, but it's very bittersweet because the scars are left, especially for the children of Flint and their future or neurological problems or learning disabilities. And the money is there to help how we can, how the family can get them the appropriate care that they need or tutoring that they need and getting them on with life. And for them, ultimately, justice would have been that this never happened. Everybody in Hinckley feels the same way. What good is the money going to do you when I have cancer and I'm going to die? You know, in Flint, they switched river waters. Flint was a perfect storm. And in a way, PG&E was a perfect storm. PG&E was uh, groundwater, well water. Uh, the PG&E, Hinkley, California, Aaron Brockovich film was a corporation knowing and hiding the information. And this is, you know, my father always taught me deception is the root cause of so many of our downfalls. And in Flint, it was another perfect storm. They switched river water. And they knew that is such a sock in your gut. The idea that your municipality or anybody in the health department or in an agency all the way up to the governor would in fact not inform you of that, knowing children would be harmed is really a slap in the face. Well, a lot of people would say it's about race. Well, and I can understand that because they underestimated that community. They underestimate the race and they think it because of your socioeconomic situation or because you don't have the education or because of this, that you're never going to figure it out. And they've underestimated this situation. And that should... <laughs> Now, you're listening to a Climate One conversation with author and activist Erin Brockovich. Coming up, she has some advice for youth activists. Just be yourself. I don't need to be reminded you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, you're not a scientist, you're, you're a girl with blonde hair and your boobs are too big and your dress is inappropriate. What do you know? And I'm like, I don't have to be any of that to be a human. And to tell you that I have a voice, what I see is wrong, and to stand up. 
Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking with water and climate crusader Aaron Brockovich, whose fight for environmental justice was depicted in a 2000 movie starring Julia Roberts. Brockovich was a 22-year-old clerk when she successfully sued one of the largest utilities in the country, California's PG&E. Recent years have seen a rise in youth activism, with teenager Greta Thunberg and groups like the Sunrise Movement making their voices heard on climate change. I asked Brockovich what advice she has for young activists who want to make a difference. The biggest message I could give them is everything that we've been talking about here we label or judge or perceive based on it, it, it. It's like when I started my work in Hinckley, I'm very well aware of who I am, but I don't need to be reminded. You're not a doctor. You're not a lawyer. You're not a scientist. You're, you're a girl with blonde hair and your boobs are too big and your dress is inappropriate. What do you know? And I'm like, I don't have to be any of that to be a human and to tell you that I have a voice what I see is wrong and to stand up and, and for our youth to believe in yourself. We let negative noises get inside of our head. And I am so frustrated with this. It doesn't matter if you're right or left, black or right, rich or poor, you are great and you need to believe in yourself and once you do, or you grab that torch, it becomes a moment where you get more information or a little more knowledge, or you get a little more confidence, or you get a little more support that you just keep going and you just keep going and you just keep going. Don't ever let somebody get inside of your head. That happened to me because I'm a dyslexic. I was labeled stupid and underestimated and all of these things. We've got to stop underestimating people. And oftentimes the youth we don't always listen to because what? They're the youth. Absolutely not. You are valued. It doesn't matter. As I said, race, money. I mean, I talk about this assessments. We assess ourselves and who we are based on what? Money? fame, what we drive, really, let's take a look and assess who we are based on character and our courage and our strength, our persistence, our determination. That, that is what matters. And I, I don't want anyone to ever forget that because I have seen it too much and I have experienced it where you are oppressed, suppressed, pushback, you don't matter, labeled, judged, Please, we need to stop that. Do you think that being sort of marginalized by powerful people and probably men, did that make you more determined? I just tell them to f off. You have to laugh, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure it does. But I've also learned very early on um, we we need to understand emotions better and the human psychology better. And 
our self-esteem, uh, self-doubts. And I do believe when you own that in yourself, these suppressive moments, and I've experienced them, that you want because, A, you're uncomfortable or you're not telling me something, that you want to project that onto me. And learning how when you know yourself, boom, that predict, oh, I don't want to say the word Teflon because, you know, that's just not a good thing. But that's your shield. You own you. You know it. And don't let that projection come back on you. So when that does happen to me, and it took me a long time to learn it, I'm like, huh, why, why do you feel you need to do that? Because I know who I am. But what is it you know or don't know or are hiding? Just be honest. I am not afraid to be honest. I'm not afraid to be vulnerable. I'm not afraid to be wrong. And I own that. So when I do, you go ahead, throw it, give me your best shot. And uh, that's oftentimes where we start to um, recoil. I've been there. As we get the, to the end, I'd like to bring it back to climate. You write a lot about climate and Superman's not coming. And, you know, the impacts are here. They're severe. They're depressing. Uh, if you know the science, you know that there's a lot of momentum built up into the system. A lot of changes will continue. More fires, more floods, et cetera. Even if we shut off all the carbon, how do you hold that? How do you not get give up or feel overwhelmed by that? Or do you? And then how do you work through it? Because I believe in people. And I believe we are inherently great. And I, I believe just born out of our love for our health, our air, our land, our water, our planet, our homes, our country, it, 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 it ex resides within us to, to want to rise and to want to fight. There are days that you're not going to feel like it, but here's what I want you to do. Give yourself permission. I, let me tell you, I've thrown myself on the floor and had a fit and said, I am not. I give up. But let yourself go there. Take some breaths. Check back in with yourself. Get back out into the environment. All of these things will remind you and renew you. Oh, yeah, this is why I get up every single day. The climate change effect could be here for any one of us. But I certainly hope and I believe that we are in a wake up call. No more buying an illusion. This is about taking action. It is real. It is here. Be prepared. Acknowledge it. we got to stop kicking the can down the road. Have the conversation. Look for the solutions. Be prepared. Work together. Follow through on that. And we have ways to defend ourselves. This is Climate One. We've been talking about water, climate change, and people power with environmental activist Erin Brockovich. Her new book is Superman's Not Coming, Our National Water Crisis and What We the People Can Do About It. Buying organic, giving up plastic straws, or biking to work may seem insignificant compared to battling corporate titans over water safety. But Tatiana Schlossberg says that everyday choices are an important part of being the kind of person who acts in more collective and impactful ways. Tatiana is a former New York Times reporter and author of Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. When we talked last year, we began by examining the climate impact of a typical morning. So I wake up 
and I look at my phone probably. So that's the first thing. Um, and you know, our phones and our, all of our devices have, um, you know, are produced using lots of metals and rare earth materials. So there's a, um, and you know, then our travel many, many thousands of miles before they reach us. Um, so there's that carbon impact and then using the internet itself uses electricity. So, um, you know, within the first few seconds I've made a dent. Um, and then I have, I guess I go downstairs and I have my breakfast. I do love yogurt. So that has a big carbon (laughs) footprint in terms of, um, you know, livestock production, um, is 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. I have some tea with milk. So already I'm not doing great. Then I, well, I guess then I'll get dressed. So, you know, depending on what I'm wearing, if it's a pair of jeans, it's a lot of water. If it's, if I'm going to go exercise, it's synthetic fibers made from oil. Um, and then, well, I live in New York, so I'll usually walk somewhere, but let's say I got into a, an Uber, (laughs) then I would be adding miles to the road and, um, you know, burning gasoline to get wherever I'm going. So within like the first hour, you can really kind of go around the world and back. You write pretty early on that we focus on the little things in the hope that they matter so we can feel like we at least did something when the apocalypse comes. In the aggregate, these little things can matter. So tell us how, uh, are we really making a difference? Are we just addressing our conscience when we make these little changes? Well, I think all these things are connected. And, you know, I, I stress in the book, Um, you know, in the beginning and throughout that this problem is too big to be solved by individual behavioral changes because it's hard to get 7 billion people to do anything without some kind of, um, you know, government regulation or international agreement or corporate action. That being said, you know, I think it's important for me and for people who care about this issue to try to live in line with our values because, you know, I want to be the kind of person who, if I learn more information about the harmful things that I'm doing, that I that I act on them, not because I think that that's enough to solve the problem, but because, you know, you know, maybe these things do add up and maybe they matter, but also kind of the consciousness around it will remind me hopefully to act in the more um, collective and impactful ways that I can, like voting or, you know, if I put pressure on a company to, to do better and, and to talk about climate change as well. So you do it to be the kind of person that you feel you should be, not because of its impact in the, in the big picture. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, there are, there are things that have, that, um, you know, contribute more than another thing, you know, like eating red meat or taking an airplane flight. I mean, those things Mm -hmm. contribute significantly, but I think me eating one fewer burger a year, I mean, or a year, a week doesn't do that much because there's so, the system is so big and the incentives are so off that really to, to fix that and to, you know, reduce the emissions associated with beef production and to, um, you know, prevent things like rural drinking water pollution or a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, the system needs to be changed as well. And I don't know that that happens just from, you know, people who care about this eating a little less red meat. I think that's, you know, what I try to work on is that bridging that, the personal and the systemic. Yeah. It's so hard because yeah. people are part of systems and yet we don't know how to change systems. Right. You know, and you write that the size of the problem and the narrative of personal responsibility is destructive. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, the the narrative around personal responsibility, the idea that if, you know, we had all just brought our own reusable grocery bags to the store 20 years ago, we wouldn't be in this situation makes us, I think, makes me anyway feel kind of guilty and turn inward and turn away from the problem and to really look at myself as opposed to, you know, what are the, what are the systems, what are the incentives um, that exist to make having a plastic bag, um, you know, 
what like how, how does the system work in a way that encourages more consumption and more waste and more emissions um, that is sort of disconnected from my role as an individual? And I also think that you know focusing so much on the individual um, distracts us from who is actually responsible for this problem. Um, and the people who are mainly responsible are fossil fuel companies and lobbyists and people who take money from them and and you know, those who've been not only kind of standing in the way of progress, but also making our chances of fighting it so much worse. And so I, you know, I don't think we should feel individually guilty necessarily for our consumption, but we should feel collectively responsible for fixing these systems and building a better world. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've tried to address in, in my book is, you know, one of the things I write about, for instance, is um, like denim production and producing genes can use um, many, many thousands of gallons of water just to make one pair of jeans. But if I'm standing in the store trying to figure out which pair of jeans to buy, it's going to be impossible for me to figure out which of those jeans was produced using the least amount of water. And so I don't know that it's necessarily it, – it, it should be the company's responsibility to have more control over their supply chain and see um, you know, where – where the waste is occurring and then try to reform those practices. And so I think, you know, in that way, I don't know that me feeling personally guilty about owning a pair of jeans fixes that problem. You come down pretty strongly on the side of producer responsibility versus consumer responsibility. Yeah. Most people think it's somewhere shared uh, because if, if people think that they have no responsibility for what they buy, right. then you know, that's not right either. Right. So it's some shared responsibility. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. I think I'm not saying that, you know, we we can all like fly with abandon and, you know, eat as much red meat or wear as much casmere as we want. Because, you know, once you learn this stuff, you have to act on it because otherwise, what's the point of knowing it? And if you limit the options of what's available, I think like a good example is with light bulbs, you know, like if you got rid of incandescence and you only had LEDs or complex fluorescence, then you wouldn't have the problem of having this wide variety of efficiency in light bulbs. So I think kind of limiting it at the market level or at the regulatory level is the most effective way to do it. You write about the five stages of environmental grief, (laughs) denial, anger, depression, and determination. Tell me about you going through those phases, you know, as you were writing this book and learning about the gravity of climate. Yeah, well, I think um, before I became a a climate and environmental journalist, I didn't want to read about it that much because it did make me feel so anxious Mm -hmm. and sort of upset and powerless as I think it you know makes many people feel that way so there's denial there you learn more about it that's anger you bargaining, get angry yeah M. yeah um depression you know it feels overwhelming like we were just saying trying to use less plastic always uh <laughs> and then determination to be I think you know for me understanding this issue you know it doesn't make me feel less scared or less um ang- less alarmed but it makes me feel slightly less anxious because I do feel that I understand the problem and I understand um you know I can evaluate for myself what politicians are proposing or what companies are saying and whether it's enough or whether it's greenwashing and that makes me feel you know like well that I guess a determination to to keep doing that and to keep asking those questions and figuring out what's necessary and so I hope that my book kind of helps people kind of go along that journey as well and come out the other end feeling motivated. This is a Climate One conversation about inconspicuous consumption. Coming up, more with author Tatiana Schlossberg, plus fashion experts on ways to reduce the carbon impact of our clothing. Think about timelessness in the piece. Think about wearing a garment or purchasing a garment that's going to be with you for the long haul. Love it. Really be a custodian, not a consumer. 
This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about our hidden carbon footprint with Tatiana Schlossberg, author of Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. One of the more surprising things Tatiana writes about is the relationship between the surge in home product delivery and the demand for cardboard. We recorded this conversation last year, well before the COVID pandemic began. With lockdown orders in place in many areas, home delivery from groceries to medication to Peloton bikes suddenly became a necessity rather than a luxury. Our conversation about the environmental impact of e-commerce seems even more relevant now. I wanted to write about e-commerce because I I wanted to see for myself if sort of all the hand-wringing about cardboard and um, the cardboard pollution and people feeling guilty about things being delivered to their house, mm-hmm. um, if that really kind of bore out in terms of whether that was, you know, worse for the environment or not. And it was really interesting to learn that, you know, over the last 10 years or so, I think uh, e-commerce has quadrupled in size in terms of value, but the cardboard production in the U.S. has stayed relatively the same. Um, but we're a lot worse at, re- like it used to all go to the retailers and they are really good at recycling it and we're much worse at recycling it. So that's kind of a problem. And then, you know, we when we drive to the store, we're much less efficient at planning our routes than the big logistics company like FedEx or UPS. Mm-hmm. So that actually might be more efficient. Um, but we kind of screw that all up when we do next day or two day delivery. And so I think part of the problem, sometimes the systems are the problem. Sometimes the, the problem is the way that we use the systems. Well, after I read that, I ordered some shaving cream online. I <laughs> just thought, oh, okay. So, I, so right. <laughs> rather than going down to the store. So um, you also write about uh, opposition to GMOs. So you kind of take a swipe at, you know, liberals who are opposed to GMOs. You say that that is kind of scientifically blissfully ignorant. I think people have kind of talked about it as if it's a health risk to us, which it's not. And it's not. Um, and I think, you know, GMOs here, we it may be something that's, you know, preventing pesticide, uh, you know, additional pesticide use or things like that. But in other parts of the world, it means, you know, vitamin A enriched rice that can prevent a lot of people from going blind. And um, so I think it's kind of a misunderstanding of what GMOs are and what value they actually can provide and also misunderstanding what the risks are. The risks, again, are this power concentration and putting farmers out of business and maybe affecting, I mean, there's some biodiversity concerns, I think, but um, in terms of kind of the health risks to humans, that's really not an issue. It's about power and monoculture and those things. It's not about the things that people like to scare about GMOs. Right, right. I think that it's important to understand why we're opposed to certain things as opposed to just, um, because again, it's this, it's this, that's this sort of problem where you need to address the system as opposed to kind of thinking about it in terms of how it affects you as an individual. So individual choices are insufficient. They're important for identity and for values. Uh, what are some of your top tips? You, For example, don't use a gaming console to stream videos. <laughs> that's a bad one. What yeah. are some other top tips? Um, well, I think, you know, some of the things we've mentioned, you know, eating less um, kind of red meat and beef products and um, other meat, you know, flying less or not at all. Buying secondhand is a really good option. Renting clothes is a good option. And then sort of... Renting clothes. Huh? Yeah. So like rent the runways of... I mean, again, you can you know drive yourself crazy trying to make the most ethical choice. And that's why I think, um, you know, I stress in the book that the most important things to do are to vote and to, um, you know, not support companies that aren't at the very least transparent and also to talk about climate change because, you know, only about a third of Americans talk about climate change with their 
friends and family. But if they do talk about it, they're more likely to consider it a risk and to support policies to mitigate it. And so I think that that is a really important thing that any, that anybody can do. So you're saying persuasion should happen, right? It, that, to convert people into the, I hate this metaphor, but the choir, right? To get yeah. people on the bus or in, in the choir. Well, I think, um, and, yeah, and, and mainly not, I don't know, per, people often, I get asked, I'm sure you get asked too, um, you know, how do you talk to deniers? I don't know, <laughs> because I don't, generally speaking, those people are living in a reality where f- physics doesn't exist. But, um, but you know, I think either kind of help um, people who are maybe not motivated, bringing them along. And then also, I think, you know, these conversations don't have to exclusively be about climate science to be talking about climate change. And there are lots of different ways that these issues manifest themselves. And so I think what I another theme in the book or something I've tried to draw out is the issue of environmental justice. And, you know, so many of us are, um, you know, people, especially um, non-white communities, low-income communities and rural communities are disproportionately impacted by the direct effects of burning fossil fuels for energy. And there are lots of different people who are affected by that, no matter what state they live in or, you know, if it's red or blue or whatever. So I think you don't have to necessarily even make the conversation about what greenhouse gas emissions are doing to the planet to show people that a fossil fuel intensive economy is not good for most people. And that, you know, kind of a lower carbon or a zero carbon future would actually be better for all of us, for our health and kind of for the different opportunities for solutions. Tatiana Schlossberg, author of Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Another place where our carbon footprint is often hidden in plain sight is in what we put directly on our bodies every day. Amina Razvi is executive director of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, a business alliance that measures environmental, social, and labor impacts across the clothing and footwear industries. She joined me earlier this year to talk about the energy embedded in our clothing, along with Rebecca Burgess, founder and director of Fibershed, a nonprofit that helps develop regional and regenerative fiber systems for clothing producers. Rebecca explains how what we wear can be as significant as what we eat. We like to wake people up to the idea that the value system that they place when putting food in their refrigerator or stocking the shelves in their kitchen is a similar value proposition as what you would fill your wardrobe with. You know, where was this fiber coming from that um, populated these sweaters and pants and socks and underwear? Where did it come from? And you know, did it come from near my home? Did it come through a complex supply chain? If I eat local, can I wear local? If I eat organic, am I wearing organic? If I'm interested in climate smart agriculture, how am I wearing those values in the fibers that I'm wearing each day? And so right now, the hidden costs They say by, and this is an Ellen MacArthur Foundation stat, that if we continue business as usual, with our textile um, production consumption patterns, that the industry will basically equate to about 26% of the overall carbon budget that humanity has to keep the planet under two degrees C. So, you know, clothing, I mean, almost a third of a global emissions budget by 2050 under business as usual scenario is significant. So we have a lot to to change, which are not only fiber choices, but behaviors and how we wear our clothing. 
That's a bigger proportion that I think I uh, realize. Amina Razvi, tell us about, do the companies recognize uh, how big a problem they are in terms of uh, in the global carbon budget and, and what's being done about it? Um, I do think that companies are increasingly becoming much more aware, not just of how complex the problem is, but of the role that they play. And I think that's because they're hearing about it at multiple levels. They're hearing about it from consumers who I think are, you know, their core customers and are asking more questions about the um, the things that they purchase from these companies. They're hearing about it from global and local stakeholders who I think are, are pressing companies to do more about these issues. And so increasingly, I think it's becoming um, a much more, I think, strategic conversation at higher levels within multiple organizations than it has been in the past. And I think that's that's great to see, but I, I do think there's a lot more to be done. Uh, some people are concerned about the supply of cotton. Cotton is there's a lot of water. And I've heard uh, Rick Ridgway, the sustainability lead at Patagonia, say organic cotton is terrible because organic doesn't address water use. So is this conversation driven by opportunity or desire to be a leader, a brand leader in sustainability? I think it's actually all of the above, right? If you are a business and you want to remain in business, I think it's imperative that you're looking at not only all of the risks, but the opportunities as well that um, sustainability can present. And I think sustainability is increasingly becoming seen as a competitive advantage. So those companies who want to demonstrate leadership, those companies who want to, um, I think, further engage with their consumers and actually rethink how they do business are, are going to be seen differently. Um, and I think that they know that. And, and so a lot of them are moving in that direction. So Rebecca Burgess, you know, tell us how much oil is in my closet? Uh, you don't know what, you've never seen my closet, but a typical guy got jeans and shirts and some exercise clothes. Um, is there more oil in my closet than I realize? For most human beings, FAO UN stat is around 70% by weight of our wardrobes is actually fossil carbon derived lithosphere based carbon. So yeah, nylon, polyester, acrylic, and, you know, when I look at typical life cycle assessments on, on those kinds of garments, we're not taking into account some of the emissions that are land-based around those extraction processes. Um, I also do not see in the use phase those fossil carbon-derived fibers being incorporated in their understanding of how we're caring for them because it's in the use phase where we see um, currently um, in the San Francisco, the San Francisco estuary um, initiative, I think it was Five Gyres and San Francisco Estuary Group, just did a whole analysis of the San Francisco Bay on microplastics. And 74% of the material they caught in their microplastics bucket was material from fibers. So when we wash our, uh, anyone washes their yoga pants or their bicycling shorts, there are fibers that go from their washing machine into the, their nearby waterway. Is yes. that what you're saying? They said, and 53% of that 74% was um, plastic fiber. And what they're concerned about is the kind of trophic cascade. So as zooplankton absorb that and then they're eaten, how that absorbs through the food chain is what most scientists are, are most concerned about from a health systems, looking at human health for the food chain that we're part of as we eat part of the marine food web for our diets, but also within the marine food web, just without the human consumer, just how is that affecting cetaceans and other life forms as it accumulates up the food web? Amina Razvi, 
Athleisure is one of the fastest growing segments. Uh, Athleta, Lulu, Lemon. These products are oil-based. What's the alternative? Can the garment industry move away from fossil fuels the way that the car industry is moving away from gasoline to electric? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in order to be able to make that move, you kind of have to know where you're starting, right? And that's a, it's the fundamental basis of the SAC and the work that we're doing around the, the Higgins, right? Um, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition um, was really founded to help bring that data um, in a global standardized way to the companies who are using it. So if you are making yoga pants, bicycling shorts, you know, denim jeans, um, what does that material look like? You know, where is it coming from? What's the environmental impact of it? Um, and if you know that, then you actually have a really good baseline. You have a, an understanding of what the impacts are currently. And what do you really need to do to shift away from those types of materials or those types of fibers towards one ones that are um, potentially more environmental? friendly or sustainable. Rebecca Burgess, top tips for people who want to be climate conscious uh, clothing consumers. What should a person do? Consider buying something if you are needing something new. If you're at that point of your wardrobe needing, you need more, more warmth, you need more options because you've put tattered clothes to bed. <laughs> um, think about timelessness in the piece. Think about wearing a garment or purchasing a garment that's going to be with you for the long haul. Love it. Really be a custodian, not a consumer. And so think about custodianship um, as a change in mindset. That's number one. Number two, simply how you care for your clothes. Um, purchasing natural fibers that aren't going to create these um, marine and terrestrial ecosystem problems with shedding um, compounds that we don't quite understand their impacts um, to even our hormone balance. So natural fiber is key. And then I would say how you wash your clothing. We can save 1,600 pounds of CO2E per year just by washing on cold and line drying. And then the last thing would be mending when it gets tattered. How can I keep this piece in play? Who are my partners in keeping this clothing alive and well? Um, is it my local dry cleaner who can help me fix this if I can't fix it myself? Um, I think those are the main things um, that I would say are important. And then when you do buy also, if you can find an organic item of clothing, if you can find something local, those are very, very key. They help stimulate um, some of these pieces that we're trying to put in play around carbon drawdown in ag lands, which is so critical to the climate conversation. And that's a really important thing to look for if you can find it. Rebecca Burgess, founder and director of Fibershed along with Amina Razvi, Executive Director of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. On today's program, we also spoke with Tatiana Schlossberg, author of Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. And we started things off with environmental crusader Aaron Brockovich. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review in your podcast app. It really does help advance the conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>